some way for opportunities, and then 5, 10, 20 years later, they're stuck in the same job. Others race to opportunities and end up on cool podcasts like this telling their story. Today, we hear from Sean Allard, a 26-year-old entrepreneur who races to opportunities. He helped build out sales for a dental consulting company right out of college while pushing his limits with side hustles like building a 30-car rental fleet on Turo in only three months. We also hear about how he views risk, reward, more about small business acquisition, and how he acquired novel ice cream within only a few months of learning of the SMB acquisition space. Sales is a great vehicle into entrepreneurship, and in this podcast, we find people who do it. Sean, you're on the Salespreneur Podcast. Thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm really excited you're here. Uh, last month, I found your story on Twitter and thought you had an amazing journey of working this sales job for four years. And then you ended up leaving that to acquire a business. You did it really quickly, which is inspiring for a lot of us, which I'm excited to hear more about it today. Um, but just to start us off, can you give me some of your background and uh, just yeah. tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Totally. Yeah. So like you said, uh, just recently acquired a business, but over the past four years, uh, up until November of 23, I was uh, working in dental consulting. Basically, we were helping dentists get into private practice, so helping them acquire existing practices, so very similar to what I did in business uh, or with this general business uh, I was doing in dentistry. So I was doing that for about four years. I've uh, been in Phoenix for about 20. Went to ASU. Uh, reason I got into the dental consulting field was planning on going into dentistry originally, got more interested on the business side of things and yeah, kind of doubled down on that front. Uh, really, really enjoyed that, that four-year period. And then as of January, February of uh, last year, 23, uh, sort of fell into the M&A space, the small business acquisition space, uh, got introduced to it by, uh, by a book that many, that many uh, of, of the people listening probably know, Buy and Build, uh, went on Twitter for the first time, just met a, a ton of people in this space and uh, kind of just saw that as my, my next step uh, into, you know, uh, into business. So yeah, that's uh, that's the origin story, and, and obviously we'll get into the business itself. But uh, yeah, four years in consulting, and then bought that business uh, a couple months later. So you went to ASU. Were you studying pre med, or or uh, what was what was your undergrad in? Yeah, so undergrad was in law, actually, uh, kind of a different approach. But in dentistry, you don't have to have a science background or a science undergrad. As long as you have your prereqs, uh, your six to eight prereqs, we'll say, in uh, in science, then your major isn't, uh, you know, it's pretty much open uh, as as much as uh, as you'd like to take it. So, went into law just because it was something that uh, that I understood more than anything else. Uh, it was an interest of mine. I knew I wasn't going to law school, but it was it was an undergrad. I felt like I could. Uh, kind of like skate my way through fairly easily while taking science prereqs because I knew that was going to be the difficult part for me. 
uh, science just doesn't come naturally for me. So the, uh, yeah, the undergrad was in law, uh, but no, no, um, no legal background, wasn't planning on going to law school. I considered it after three years of, of doing the undergrad, but uh, wasn't mm -hmm. the intent going into it. Okay. Um, and so I guess I'm curious, how did you get into the, cause you work for a company that's called shared practice. It, it, it yep. sounds like you start off, it was just a few of you guys and you end up, can you tell me just a little bit about how that, that started and what your role became? Yeah, sure. So met a, met a dentist who owned a practice uh, my senior year of undergrad. Um, and he, he became a mentor of mine. I was really looking to him uh, as somebody who could guide me down the acquisition space, uh, specifically in dentistry. And so uh, I was learning a ton from him, how he got into dentistry, why he purchased the practice, some of the, you know, some of the things he was working on to, um, to remove himself from the day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, as a practice owner. So learned a lot from him originally. Uh, and then he and two partners were starting a consulting company. Uh, I got introduced to that side of his world a couple months after us meeting. Uh, I quickly came on as like a, I guess you could say like an admin assistant in a way, because I was still full-time in college. I was working. Um, so I just wanted to be a part of what they were doing. And as... You know, as time progressed, got more involved with the company, and then towards uh, graduation, or a little bit post-graduation, actually, as I was doing applications for dental school and such, I got more involved with the company. Uh, so at that point, we were about maybe four, five, including me, somewhere, somewhere around there. And then in the first year and a half or so, I was 100% of ops um, and... I guess you can say marketing to a certain extent, but very heavily, heavily on, uh, on operations. So systemizing our offerings, um, putting together our initial services and, and packages and things of that nature, and then just getting our name out in the marketplace. We had a, we had a podcast, which was our uh, primary driver of business. Uh, and then uh, again, just kind of making the backend operations clean enough. So when we did open it up to the public and have, you know, a, a good team or a good client base, I should say, we were prepared for it. So a year and a half uh, focused on the ops side of things and then uh, went into the sales side and uh, really just dove into scaling after about a year and a half and really uh, took over sales department. Uh, sales department was me because uh, we were that small. Uh, at that point in the business, a year and a half, two years in, we were maybe... I would say 20 to 25. So we had about 10 consultants uh, who worked one-on-one -on -one with dentists, myself, and then obviously the leadership team, uh, the original leadership team. And so, yeah, sales, uh, you know, day-to-day -day looked very similar to any normal sales role, phone calls, emails, follow-up, just connecting with dental students connecting with dental associates and current practice owners to, to one, get them into private practice. And then those who are currently private practice owners, we were helping them uh, you know, on, on the business side of things. So we'd help uh, operations, marketing, back in off, front office, back office, 
just like any other consultant would in a general business, we were um, that for private practice owners. So um, selling services to all three of those buckets, uh, masterminds, coaching, um, what else? Private events, ton of stuff. So yeah, very so like hustly one-on-one sales. It kind of sounds like you fell into it because which happens to everybody. I don't think anybody necessarily wants to do sales. It's just it's from a college job that they end up getting into it, or it's the best paying thing that they can find after college. Um, did you see a career in that? Or was that more of you just fell into it and that's what you ended up doing for a few years after college? Yeah, this is a good question. I um, I wouldn't say I saw, I, I saw a career or potential career in sales about six months in. Um, I actually really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. I think it was the industry I was in and the people I was around. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a lot of sales jobs that, that suck. And I think that it, it, it stems from the industry or the lack of belief in the product or, um, yeah, there, there's, there's a variety of things that make sales crappy. But I think if you find, if you, one, if your company has a great product and you're working with people you actually want to talk to and be around, I, I love working with dentists. They're great people, very smart people. Um, many of them did have a business mind. They just didn't necessarily know how to execute or didn't have time to execute. So it was, it was cool to connect with with those types of people. So I actually enjoyed it. Um, but no, I did not see, I didn't see a career in it originally. I sort of fell into it because uh, the upside of things a year and a half in was starting to get taken care of. We brought some more people on the team. They were able to handle that side of things. And then obviously at some point you do need a dedicated sales force uh, to go out and get more business. Right. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was next of kin to like take that project on. Uh, but like I said, I really enjoyed it. And if I didn't buy something, I would say in the next couple of years, if I wasn't still with shared practices, I would have you know, I, I would have either started my own company and been, you know, primarily on the sales side at that point, especially if you're starting something. Uh, but if mm-hmm. I went to work for somebody else, it would definitely be on the sales front. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was a kind of a blessing in disguise. I found what I really enjoyed. And then that the skill um, development in that two year, two and a half year period was, you know, was uh, extremely valuable. That's awesome to hear. And you do learn a lot in sales. It's, it's even better when you can find something that you're passionate about. Uh, I, I think you're right with a lot of sales jobs do suck, especially if it's a product that does not solve an issue that you have to create value where there's really no value there. Uh, and especially in a B2B sense, because that's what I do now, right? I sell business to business. It's more fun when you can talk to people that are, you're trying to solve a business issue, whether it's, for you on trying to understand how their practice can operate more efficiently, or if there's a tool that they can implement to increase margins, customer retention. Uh, so you really do become more of a consultant, which it sounds like you were kind of more on the consulting side of, of sales. Is that fair to say, or were you actually like bringing in that new business as well? It was 90% bringing in new business. So I wasn't a quote unquote, like consultant. Uh, I had, I had a intermediate level knowledge of 
what we actually did on a day-to-day -day basis. We had a good team of, at any given time, we had eight to 10 coaches on our team. Those were the consultants that went into the practice and actually executed on what I was selling or what we were selling through podcasts, through what, you know, any, any platform mm -hmm. that we were selling. Yeah. But the, the service I was selling was executed by our team of consultants on the back end. But um, could I have gone in? Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, but my, yeah. my, my skill was definitely not on the execution. It was, it, I understood the service and the product very well. Uh, so I can, I can obviously sell it uh, well, but the execution, mm -hmm. uh, I needed a lot of work on. So if I became a consultant, it would have taken, you know, I, I would have probably had to transition into a full-time uh, consultant at that point to learn the execution of what I was actually selling. But going back to what you were saying about the, like the conviction that you have when you do like the product or you believe in the product, um, I, I don't even feel like I was actually selling 50% of the time. Like if I was, if I was, I mean, very rarely cold called anybody or you know, jumped on the phone with somebody who had never heard of us. So uh, most of it was just kind of outlining where they like, like closing the gap from where they were and where they wanted, where they wanted to be versus trying to convince them that they needed something, you know, that they may not need because most of them were coming to us. Uh, through our, you know, through our podcasts or various other channels, and my role was more of a, uh, I was like an informer of a service <laughs> versus a salesperson. For sure, yeah, you were just, and it seems like you have the type of charisma that you could attract that kind of attention or feel very comfortable creating new relationships, brokering uh, different people to up other opportunities. Which I know you're doing stuff now that we might get into to chat about later um, yeah. on how you're doing that with uh, other people that are SMB owners in today's world. But, yeah. you know, two or three years ago, you're, let's say you're, you've been selling at shared practices for a couple of years. Uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast, my peers included, um, are in this career path. Maybe they're looking at uh, going to buy a business, get into real estate, or they want to build a career out of sales and continue to do that. Um, can you kind of walk me through what was going through your mind like while you were doing that job and what led you to buying a business? Yeah. So it, it's tough to say what routed me. I, I always knew I wanted to either own something uh, or I, I knew I wanted to you know, own something, I guess. It, I didn't know whether I wanted to start or buy something. Uh, I actually didn't even know buying something was an option until January, February of 23. But before then, I had tried a ton of random things. Um, and there wasn't a, a moment that I can identify that, that I can say, like, I need to make a change or I need to, you know, I need to jump in a different role or pivot what I'm currently working on. I've just always kind of tinkered in the background of uh, what I was doing full time. So previous jobs, I always had like two or three things going on at one time to see what was fun, what wasn't, like, what industries I liked. So I was always kind of tinkering. Nothing actually ever like took off. I never put enough energy into the little things I was tinkering with um, until I got into the Turo space in 20, 2022. So around middle summer of 2022. Um, if you're not familiar with Turo, it's just a, uh, 
last summer. Yeah. Yeah, 22. Okay. That's what year. So a year, yeah. I mean. Oh, almost, okay. Wow. Time is, a year and a half. I'm not even. <laughs> okay, a year <laughs> yeah, and a half so, ago. Yep, August-ish of 2022. So if you're not familiar with Turo, it's basically uh, an online rental car platform. You can go on the platform, uh, rent a car from an individual across the country, wherever you are. Um, it's like the Uber for rental cars, basically. Um, and you can, or the Airbnb, I guess you can say, uh, equivalent of, of uh, so anyways, got into that space, uh, quickly, quickly saw the opportunity. I got one or two cars and was like, cool, let's, you know, let's play around with this, see what happens. I uh, used my own personal vehicles for it and kind of doubled down on that. Saw it as a, a good, like quote unquote, side hustle, if you will. And, um, so got up to about 27 cars. I brought on two others to, to help me out as well from a, from a financing standpoint. But I was running the day-to-day. -day. It was all on me. I was running a fleet of 27 cars while, you know, running my, uh, you know, working with shared practices and just random little projects here and there. So that was the first thing that, like, actually got some traction and was, was really working. Uh, but it got to a point where it was unmanageable. It was just me. Uh, the fleet kept growing. We kept getting more and more cars, I think. I think 27 might have might have been the peak, maybe close to 30. Um, so just got unmanageable, uh, and then tailored that down. Were you making? Were you? Sorry, Sean. Were you making you know, enough money off that that you could have that you could have left share practice, or was it not much of a not as much of a income stream as you would have wanted to to make the jump? I could have made the jump. Um, it was it was less than my what I was making at shared practices, but I could have definitely made the jump. Like expenses were paid for with that, you know. Like I could have definitely lived off of it. Um, I just didn't see, I, I really didn't see how I could scale it further, and I didn't want to hire anybody else to take it over. Mm -hmm. um, that's just me being naive, and you know, at that point, not seeing the way that I could get myself out of it. I just felt kind of stuck. I was like, okay, how do I, I can't really make any more money because I can't work more. Um, obviously, knowing what we know now, <laughs> it's the, like you can always hire someone. So it didn't even cross my mind at that point. I was like, I, I, I don't know what else But that's to your do. first experience, right? That, was, that yeah. was your first experience going from zero to one. You went, and I don't know if you just said that, but I know I, I've seen your LinkedIn post where you said you went from zero cars essentially to 30 in three months. I'm sure that's a bit of an overwhelming experience too, just trying to manage a fleet and make sure that cars aren't getting damaged. It's it's kind of a full-time yeah. job. And so going from zero to one that. in such a short period of time. Yeah, I'd be kidding that. So yeah, scale that down uh, just because I didn't see a, a path out of it or I didn't see a way to scale it any further. So it's like, you know, if this isn't enjoyable, um, obviously a, a brighter and better circumstance with shared practices than a rental car company by by a mile. So the, uh, yeah, the, the business shut down like eight months later, I think I went on for another five ish months. Um, so it's about an eight month sprint. And then after that, uh, again, kept tinkering with things. Didn't necessarily so, have, sorry to, go ahead, go ahead. sorry to cut you off again. Uh, just knowing what you know now, do you think there's a way you could have exited that business better? Definitely. I think I could have just sold it. To be honest, I could have sold yeah. the fleet of two ways. I obviously could have hired a team of two or three guys. Um, and 
or excuse me, could have sold it for, you know, probably what I bought it for or bought all the calls cars for. Um, wasn't generating a crazy amount of cash, so I wouldn't have put a multiple on it, but it would have mm-hmm. probably would have sold for break even. Um, and yeah, you kind of like clean your hands dry and, and jump out of it, but definitely lost significant amount of money just because I didn't think of the other options and was like, I don't want to do this tomorrow. So the option today is close it and stop doing it altogether. Like the, so yeah, anyways, definitely more options. If you take a second to think about it. Oh, sure. And I'm sure you had like some scar tissue from that as well. Just putting yeah, in so much like, equity and, and cash. Yeah, exactly. It was more like the thought in the moment was I, I actually don't want to wake up tomorrow and work on this for 16 hours. So let's just close it right now. Basically let's, let's go to the dealership tomorrow and sell all these cars. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah. Anyways, that, um, it was, it was a great experience, honestly, like customer service, uh, you know, equipment management. I, I could go on and on of, you know, things I, I learned from that, but yeah, great experience. And then going back to some of the other projects, um, just a variety of like little things that I tried to tried to do. I could even think of one off the top of my head. Like yeah, I even thought about doing a podcast at one point. Like all of these random things that I like had no experience in doing, which you're you know you're obviously doing, and they're working. Um, but my issue was doubling down on one of them versus trying to do ten different ones and seeing which one would stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that can be a hard process too, especially. Uh... When you're entrepreneurial minded, trying to figure out what your path is. The nice thing about when you're doing it while you you have a W-2 or while you're still in sales is that you have that cushion to help fund it. So you can have a lifestyle and continue to pay your bills down and save up cash. It's like you do with the Turo to where even though you sold it off, you still were in an okay position, right? Because you still had a job that you could fall back onto and, and everything like that. Um, until I guess you come up to this, this next opportunity. So you're, you're taking around with things. You do sales for three ish, four years, constantly like looking at, at different opportunities to, to build a business. Um, and then you find this ETA world, which, uh, for some people that are listening, just as, as a, as a reference point, Sean, um, you know, we have salespeople that are looking into real estate, people that are looking at building a business, buying a business, all sorts of different things. The ETA space, I feel like it's something that's kind of blossomed over the last three to four years. Could you kind of explain it to me, like how you learned about it and even just super simple things that you feel like everybody knows, but maybe were things that were new to you when you learned? Yeah. Yeah. So my high level, well, how I learned about it was... Uh, Twitter, and I know that blows most people's minds, but just scrolled around Twitter, messing around, and, and obviously reading through a ton of business people's stuff, and came across the ETA space, dove more into it. Like I said, January, February of, of last year, came across uh, you know some general information on the platform, and I think I got most of what I needed to understand what I was getting myself into if I decided to go down that route simply from the content that was being posted on there. Uh, but I came across a couple of posts on two books. Uh, one is 
be by Wall, yeah, what's his name? Walker Dibel. Uh It's called By the Bill. There's another one. Uh, it's I think the Harvard Book of uh, Harvard Business Book. Yeah, the the Harvard Business Review. Yeah. So I uh, came across both of those. I bought By the Build. I actually bought both of them, but I read By the Build pretty much. You know, after that book was done, kept going back to Twitter for some general information on the space and how to actually go about this. Uh, I was sold. It was it was quick. Uh, before I started uh, doubling down on that, I went from you know not knowing anything in January, February to you know, maybe even mid-February, early March to starting search, um, you know, like actually outlining what this would look like for me if I went down this route and, and told myself pretty pretty early on that I would buy something that year. I wanted to buy something in six months. And I was like, cool, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, again, it was straightforward. I, I didn't feel like, when you first hear about buying a business, you, you think you, one, this, this doesn't happen for normal people. You, you got to be rich. You got to have money to do this. Um, nope. Like, who's going to sell me their business without experience? Like, there's so many questions, right? Um, like, how is this possible for somebody who doesn't come from this background or is you know, in M&A or private equity or whatever? Mm -hmm. whatever. So, um, yeah, that was the initial question when I came across that content. But again, like it was so clearly laid out and there's so many people in the space, specifically on Twitter. It, it, it's very, it's a small world, but it, it seems like it's all insulated on, the, on that platform. So I learned very quickly and I saw how many other people were doing this. And uh, again, it just, it just felt right. And I went to work right away. Uh, but th those two resources were pretty much what sold me on the opportunity. Uh, I didn't need a whole lot of convincing. And two, it, it was easy to understand. It's like, as long as... You know, if you want to do it alone, for example, you have you have financing options. If you have a, a portion of cash, ten to twenty percent, you can make it happen. So it was it was fairly simple, and, and we'll get into how that that happened. But yeah, I got to work pretty much after I read that book. And so, and sorry, just I want to explain ETA entrepreneurship through acquisition. It's becoming an entrepreneur as you acquire a business through acquiring a business. Um, you ended up buying an ice cream shop. Do you want to go ahead and tell me how you found it and what the process was of like financing it and taking over and what that whole process looked like? Yeah, sure. So took the three-pronged approach of, of finding the business. So got connected with a ton of brokers. I mean, when I first started the search, I was pretty location agnostic. I felt like I was going to lean toward an online business, but as time went on, um, I did not, uh, not for any reason, just wanted to, ended up finding some really cool, um, you know, physical businesses. Um, so one is connected with pretty much as many brokers as I possibly could on a daily basis. Once I started focusing on Arizona, it was just every broker in Arizona. So on the phone with every broker emailing every broker, texting every broker, just making sure that my name was top of mind when a business in my price range came up. So connecting with every broker, uh, going direct to seller. So there was a handful of businesses uh, in Arizona specifically that 
I was interest, interested in just from being a customer or uh, being connected with them in, in some shape or form. So one example is an auto repair business uh, connected with the seller, went back and forth for a couple of months. That deal didn't go through, but that's an example of one. Like I, I had been to, I'm super into car shows, so I've been to many car shows locally. Um, they were a sponsor of many of those events. And so just naturally it was like, cool, I could see myself buying that company. Um, so something like that would be, you know, a great option for people. Um, just kind of like look at your, you know, look in your market for things that, for places you shop at, products you use, services you use, things like that. And, and those might be companies that would make sense for you to buy. Third uh, on the list is uh, online listings. So websites like Biz by Sell, Axial, uh, Rejig, so many, so many different ones. And I could, we could link all those in, in the post uh, or in the notes here. I can send you a, a list of all the ones. That'd be great. Use, yeah, those, a uh, ton of those. So uh, I got like automated listings from those sites. I would jump on this by sell, for example, on a daily basis and just search through the ones that were available. Uh, but this specific deal, um, I found through a broker that I had originally connected with, not for any specific deal that was online, but uh, Google search, Arizona brokers, Arizona business brokers, and uh, connected with him. He had sent me maybe two or three deals prior to that. He jumped on a call one day. He's like, hey, I connected with a seller about uh, this ice cream company. He's got two locations. He's thinking about selling. Nothing's listed yet. He doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have a beautiful sim or you know, anything put together yet. He's got some P&Ls if you want to take a look at them. And uh, at first I was pretty pretty hesitant. I didn't think uh, I would ever even consider the food and beverage space, but like something about the way he was like pitching me on the deal, great salesman, if, <laughs> if anything, but he was pitching me on the deal uh, pretty well. Um, didn't, he was telling me about the numbers from a high level, telling me about the owner. And so... Uh, yeah, I was like, cool, I'll send it over, take a, I'll take a look, and, and uh, it didn't take anything of it. Uh, he sends me P&Ls, numbers look great. Decided to you know, jump on a call with the seller. He's like, cool, let's, let's hear what his thoughts are. And then, yeah, connected with the seller. Uh, he kind of gave me his breakdown, uh, what his day-to-day -day looked like, why he was selling, you know, just the, the whole, kind of the whole interview that, you know, you would typically do with, with a seller. And got uh, got excited about the opportunity. I thought it uh, it was it was it was easy to understand. Um, I felt like I could. There were a ton of levers I could pull immediately just from what he was outlining to me that he was and wasn't doing. Uh, the market opportunity here locally in Arizona, even if I decided not to scale to other states, was was there. Uh, brand was built over five ish years, so great reputation locally. Uh, no marketing, no social presence, no, uh, just, just so many, just so many opportunities that weren't being executed on yet. The business was doing so well and the brand was built, um, you know, the brand was so stable, um, that, yeah, I just didn't see how somebody wouldn't be excited about this deal. And, uh, yeah, felt like, why not me? Uh, if this is, a, if this is something I do on my own. This this is a business I can understand, and I know the exact things that I need to do to grow it, uh, and 
yeah. So we can walk through the deal. Do you want me to walk through like the SBB process and how I structured it and all that? Yes. Okay. So I'd be really interested in that. And then um, maybe before we get there, can you tell me the name of the the ice cream shop and also just what made uh, the ice cream shop stick out compared to other, I mean, like what made the business unique? If you, I mean, yeah. compared to buying another ice cream shop or something else in the food and beverage space. Yeah. So one, it was multi-unit. So it was two shops. Um, they were, their, their average, their revenue per unit was pretty incredible too. So one of the shops out in Phoenix was doing about 800. Second shop in Mesa was doing about 400. So about 1.2 total out of two shops, which is great for, you know, a five to 800 square foot ice cream shop with, you know, very, with a very limited menu. Uh, brand was, uh, was very strong. Um, I mean, you could go to, you, you could ask just about anybody in, you know, Phoenix or Mesa, which is a, it's a huge, right? I mean, you're talking over a million people in Phoenix oh, yeah. alone. Most people Major that metro. talk to that at least know what it is which is you know which is which is uh which is good like if you're interviewing a business and you're trying to better understand like how good of a reputation a business has in the area and most people are like hell yeah go there and try it you know that's that's good so uh i heard you mentioned things on... made the business thing, but it was, it was pretty much the, the brand is what stood out to me obviously financials were very strong and um and it wasn't, it, it was very locally driven, but it, it had, um, it wasn't like a, a one-off mom and pop restaurant or a bar that you usually come across, right? It just had a different feel to it. Um, it felt like it was, it, it was an actual brand. There, there was, there was brand reputation built around these shops and this company versus it just being, you know, Joe's pizza joint or, you know, whatever down the street, um, so, yeah. I know. Um, no, th thanks for that, Sean. It helped me understand the brand. I know last time we chatted about it, you talked a little bit about how you were looking at this as kind of a legacy business and it's something you want to build out. Uh, so it sounds like that's something that's important to you is having a brand that you can build around. Um, I also know on uh, the the interview you did with, Will Smith at Acquiring Minds, you mentioned how it had an amazing Google reviews. I think you said it had, what was it, like some of the best Google reviews in, in the nation? Yeah, it's the, the Phoenix shop is the highest rated ice cream shop in the country. Yeah. And, and how did you you take those reviews again? It was, uh, I guess it's like over 2,000 at 4.9 or something like that. 4.9, we're at like, as of today, I think we're 1904 or 1905, so almost 2,000. Okay, still like really impressive. Um, and so you talk about the brand, comparing it to maybe a a Cold Stone ice cream or other ice cream places that I'm familiar with, what what specifically makes the brand unique? Is it uh, because you guys are on TikTok? Is it because of the unique and crazy flavors? Or what is that? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one, I will say we're, we're lacking heavily on social media. So it's one of the biggest focuses in mind over the next couple of years is to like really build that internal team for us to you know, take advantage of that. Cause, cause that, that is one of the biggest opportunities in front of us. Uh, any retail, you know, food and beverage business should be 
you know, heads down focused on that. But anyways, the, the three biggest things I would say, one is everything we do on the ice cream side uh, is handmade every single day. Uh, we do everything small batch, so we don't mass manufacture ice cream. Uh, everything is very, very meticulous. Uh, flavors are very intentional. Quality of products inside everything from cream to, you know, something like um, even a candy mixture, for example, if we're doing like a sour candy sorbet flavor. These candies are the highest quality candies. These aren't just, you know, uh, everything is very, very high quality from, uh, from a product standpoint not mass manufacturing again. Two, uh, we have a, a different approach in our core product. So, you know, if you look at a Cold Stone or a Baskin Robbins, or most of the ice cream shops, their focus or what they're known for is their ice cream, just in a traditional cup or a cone. What we do is a ice cream stuffed donut. So if you look it up online, it's a donut sliced in half. You have the ice cream in the middle. So you can put a sorbet, any of the 12 flavors that we have on the menu in that donut. So that's that's our core product. That's actually what Novel is known for, uh, but it helps that our ice cream is also high quality and it's, you know, we're not relying on the donut or the ice cream to be, uh, you know, to, to be the winner for us. Both of them together, just, it, it's just, it's crazy. That, that's all I can say. If you try it, you'll know what I mean. So. Both of those. And then, um, yeah, I would say those two. I maybe lost the third while I was talking, but those two are pretty much the, the biggest two things. And then obviously brand too is, is another thing. Like it's very, um, it's very fun, artsy, hip. Like it's just, uh, it, it kind of has like a fresh feel to it versus like a very boring, you know, like, uh, like most of these brands are very legacy brands for for these companies, but for you sure. just don't have a lot of spaz. Um, and you you also mentioned flavors. That was the third one I was going to say. Um, is the rotation of our flavors. So we have twelve flavors on the menu every day. Four of them rotate pretty much every day. Sometimes multiple times a day. So eight of them are always there, no matter when you go. You always have those options. Um, and four of them, two of them are ice creams and two sorbets. Those will rotate. So if we run out of that. That flavor, we have other flavors that we'll throw in, but we only have one to two pans of those ice creams at any given time. So if it's a super popular flavor um, that we bring into the shops often, those will go in, you know, let's say an hour, two hours, and then we'll have another flavor. So if you came at 12 p.m. one day um, and you went, you know, four hours later, we could have a, a totally new rotation of four ice creams if those four were super popular. So Good, good, consistent rotation on a weekly basis, daily and weekly basis. Oh, so that's that's kind of similar to the the crumble model. Is just having like a, a rotating menu. Is that kind of similar? Yep, yep. So you know, similar to crumble, I think they have maybe two of their you know core cookies that are always there, and then on mm -hmm. a weekly basis, you know, let's say I think six total, and four of them rotate every you know every week. Um, the cool thing about this is not only are we doing weekly, so we'll have, we'll make everything for that week. And then the, you know, the, the four main ice creams that we have, we could have three, four, maybe five pans of those. So you might see that like every three days come up, but um, every three days for the next week, for example. But even on a daily basis, which, which is unique in our space and the dessert space as a whole, even within a you know, one day you'll see multiple different flavors potentially come up on the menu. 
uh, that's a really smart business model that you can continue to have people want to come back and try different things. Uh, I mean, even looking at your website, it, it looks very friendly. Uh, the, the food just looks exciting and all the like different flavors is very vibrant. Um, I actually have family down in Mesa and in like the Gilbert area. So I'll have to have them come by and, and try Please it out. Do. Um, yeah, give me an honest review afterwards. Yeah, no, <laughs> no I'll, I'll, I'll send a few people over. My family like is big on food. Anytime we go down there, we're always trying diff to find different places. Uh, they're, yeah, they love to eat out. But um, so yeah, okay. Two more things I want to ask you about. Um, one is walking us through the financing and then I have another question after that. Um, but yeah, can you just walk me through what you acquired it for and like how you were able to go through that process? Yeah. So did an SBA 7A on this deal, uh, 90%. What is that? So, What's that mean? So don't know what the 7A means, but it's a small business. Uh, it's a small business loan backed by the government. So you can work with hundreds of different SBA lenders across the country. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a personally guaranteed asset-backed loan that uh, you need to come up or you need to come with 10% down on. So most SBA lenders will lend up to 90% on the purchase price of the deal. And there's a multitude of different ways you can structure that 10% that you are personally bringing in. Um, I won't go into that because there's, you know, there's a lot of nuance and there's seller carrybacks and notes and standbys, all this stuff that I do not want to butcher. So I'll, gi I'll give you my structure. This 90% super simple structure. Looking back, I would have gotten a little bit more creative with it, given the rules that are now in place and things. Uh, but super simple structure, 90% uh, SBA deal. So they funded 90% of the purchase price of 1.12 was, was my purchase price on the deal. So we'll just say 1.1, for example. Uh, okay. They, they, they financed 90% of that. I injected 10% of that, so about 110,000. Um, got that capital from friends and family. Reason I didn't bring anybody else on, or you know, obviously didn't bring partners or investors into play to cover that 10% or even uh, cover the entire purchase price, for example, and what SBA is, um, truthfully did not feel super comfortable bringing other partners on, on my first deal, because if it didn't go well, it was on me, right? I didn't have other people that I needed to take care of if I messed up and made a very poor decision on the business, made mistakes throughout, you know, my, my tenure in the business. Um, so I, I really wanted to take this opportunity to learn how to actually operate a business, right? I, like I said, I did not have 10 businesses before going into this. So I had very limited operational experience on how to do this alone. I wanted to learn how to do that before I did deals with other people. Um, so the 10% the down is not something you have to do. And $110,000 is a lot of money, right? That's, that's oh, not sure. easy to work out that, that 110 k So just so everybody that's listening and you know, knows there are so many different options on how to take care of that 10% or structure it in a variety of different ways with seller financing, with a mixture of, of traditional bank financing. There's a thousand different ways to go about it. But um, I kept it, I kept it simple. 
for one, I'm impatient and I wanted to just get the deal done. It's like, cool, this is straightforward. Let's just, let's do this. Um, I tend to be impatient. So I just, I, I find the, the path of least resistance. <laughs> and uh, two, uh, like I said, I, I wanted to own it 100%. Didn't want to feel like I owed anybody anything if, you know, it didn't work out. Um, and if it does work out great, I made the right decision. If it doesn't, it's a learning experience for me um, and, you know, nobody else suffers, right? So, yeah, that's that's where uh, I went with that. Uh, and then you asked me something else or was that the... No, I, that was the show? but no, what, but the other thing I, that uh, I find interesting here is you, you ran a, a Toro company before. It seems like that was a little bit rough. And then you go into buying a business, which you know, you have a personal guarantee. There's obviously a lot more uh, at stake here. How did you kind of overcome some of that scar tissue or that experience and have the confidence to go, one, ask people for money, but also to like actually execute on, on buying a business? Yeah, so I sat down with friends and family um, back in March when I actually first started looking for something. And uh, this, was, this is what helped me put together my... Um, my purchase price like kind of gave me a ballpark of what I was able to afford if I wasn't putting you know only my capital into play. So um, I, I they, they knew I always wanted to work on something. So when I approached it, like, hey, you know, this is what I've learned over <laughs> like two weeks, three weeks, which is not super reassuring for somebody. But um, here, here's my plan. Um, here's what I'm you know proposing to you if um, you wanted to get on board with this. Um, and family also wanted to be a part of the ventures that I was working on. So, um, and I wanted them to be a part of it as well. Um, my, my family has a very little business experience, um, but I know they wanted to be a part of that. So the, um, conversation was, was fairly simple. Just approached it with, um, you know, with my plan said, here's what I do need. Here's the ideal scenario. We buy something like in the one to $2 million range. That was what I saw as realistic for myself, whoever wanted to inject capital, um, that it wasn't too much of a financial lift and risk uh, for the first one, for the first go around. And I felt like pulling some money together, like we could come up with that, you know, that injection of 10%. So anywhere in, in the one point one to $2 million purchase price is what you know, I ended up with. And that's what I went out to search for. And then, yeah, the, the personal Personal guarantee is an interesting one. Uh, I know a lot of people are back and forth about that, especially when going uh, on their first acquisition. I think if you've done this before or if you've, if you've, if you've often operated businesses before and this is your first acquisition and there's a personal guarantee, I think it's not as scary because you, you have trust in yourself, right? Like I've, I've built businesses before. I'm good to go. Sure. This, is, this isn't going to fail. But yeah, I think we, we well, talked about this. Go ahead. Well, no, I was even going to say that, not to to label you or anything, but I feel like in your situation, you know, you're 26, uh, you have you don't have a lot of uh, like a big family that you're having to take care of or anything, so you're really kind of at this like low risk stage of your life. Um, right. And one thing I've noticed, just this theme, is that you have a a bias towards action, as some people would call it. It just seems like when you want to go do something, you do it. I, I mean, I know you post on Twitter that you're gonna train for this marathon in two months and 
you went from zero to 30 with this, this Turo company. And, you know, within three months of getting into the ETA space, you're putting LOIs out, uh, letters to go buy business and um, try, try these, these quote seem like crazy things. And so I, I think part of it is maybe you're just at a stage of life where you can do that, but also some of that seems like it's part of your personality. And so, I, I mean, I think that that's really awesome. I have a lot of respect for people that just go out and, and do it because in the world we live in today, it's so easy to sit on, on Twitter, on X, on uh, LinkedIn, on Instagram or YouTube and see people that are actually doing it and just not do anything about it and say, oh, okay, yeah, like one day I'll, I'll do that. And then you never take action. And so I think it's cool to see people like you that, dude, even if it hits the fan and like nothing works out, at least you're taking the risk on it. Um, I mean, is that kind of how you look at it or how do you, because I mean, because in some ways it seems like you're kind of doing crazy things, but also I think the intent is you just want to get stuff done. Is that how you look at it? Yeah. One, I I appreciate that. It's very, very kind of you. Um, Yeah. I I would say that's sort of in my nature. Uh, I've always, when I get, most of the ideas I get are crazy, um, but I don't think of that in the moment. I just sort of execute and then I think about the repercussions later, which is not always the <laughs> the best way to go about things. But um, yeah, it does lead to you just trying things and throwing sometimes throwing crap at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Um, you know, this is probably, uh, uh, this is a lot more risky than the other ventures, obviously, but with the personal guarantee, um, I just felt convicted in, in the moment that I, I would figure it out. Even if it, things started going in a you know downward direction, like I bring in advisors, I bring in support, I bring, like, whatever it is to like actually try to figure this out and make it work. Um, I, I I didn't see it leading to the point of you know me regretting putting a personal guarantee down. Um, so it's uh, not to say that it's an easy you know you just kind of brush it off and you keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. It definitely crossed my mind uh, when when I was going through the process. Um, but the pros in the moment just outweighed the fact that things could go wrong. Um, I, I almost didn't want to look back and say, the only reason I didn't do this deal is because I didn't want to put it all on the line. Um, and if you really look at the fine print, it's really not all on the line and we can, you know, that's a whole other story if we're looking at For sure. There's always a way. There's always a way. Exactly. So, you know, it's, people think that, you know, your business fails and tomorrow your the bank comes and takes your house, your kids, your cars, your you know, you're you're living on the street. So um <laughs> the, well, that's not gonna happen. No, it's, it's, you know, there's there's I, I think my, my mind just went to I will figure this out and if for any reason something gets to the point where um you know the, the personal guarantee is 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 affected and it's actually coming into play now as a as an issue um you know it, it was it wasn't meant to be it wasn't meant to be <laughs> for sure well sean i might even i'll send you this podcast i listened to that reminds me of what you just said which it's brian lubin over action academy podcast and he says uh your current situation is your worst case scenario meaning okay let's say i'm in a job and I go start this business and it fails. Well, the worst case scenario is you just go back to your job that you already have, right? So your worst case scenario is literally the life you're living right now. So the only difference is, is I 
took the risk and I don't have any regrets. Right. So, um, exactly. I think, so I think it's just like really interesting when you can live that way. Um, but I really appreciate you jumping on here, Sean, and telling us a little bit more about your story, giving people like me a little bit of inspiration on taking a risk and just trying something different. Uh, if you could just leave me with one last thing, I'm curious uh, if you, there's just one piece of advice, maybe in like less than 30 seconds, what would you tell someone that's working at a nine to five sales job right now that's looking to to buy a business? Good question. Um, you know, other than like the cliche, just do it or just go for it. I think the biggest thing I could say is try to tap into your strengths and see what what business you could get into that you're most suited for. Like take what you're currently doing or what have what you've done in the past, you know, if it's sales or if it's um, you know, if you've been in marketing for 10 years, 15 years, like maybe start there versus, you know, trying to take the route that I and many people do uh, when they don't necessarily know their strengths and, you know, just go out and try to find any business to buy. So the first step is if you want to go down this route, try to find something that you're actually, you know, skilled enough to work on and make a difference in. Um, I know it's fairly basic, but yeah, I mean, just go for it. Like find something that you can potentially afford on your own if you aren't super confident in bringing on outside investors or partners. Like try to try to find something you can take your own personal cash and, and make a difference in, and then. Start there. Start with one deal, and trust me, that that one deal will open up worlds for you. I mean, the the amount of people, deals, relationships that I've built just from making one purchase or one decision has like completely changed my life. I mean, now you know I just got off off the phone earlier with two potential you know people to to work on another deal with. So it's you know even if it's the first deal doesn't change your life or you know make you a millionaire, for example, it's going to open up worlds that you had, you know, no, no business being in. So, yeah, I, that's, well, that's and even, yeah, well, and even in your journey, it sounds like you've been able to leverage some of the skills you had in sales to, to dig deeper and really sell yourself to the person that you were buying the business from and being able to sell yourself to, like you just said, these, these other potential partners. So that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but thanks so much, Sean, for being on. Um, appreciate you. And we'll see you next time. Absolutely, man. Thank you. You've just listened to my exciting conversation with Sean Allard. To find references to books and other podcasts mentioned, feel free to check the show notes. If you'd like to connect, please shoot me a note on any of my social handles for feedback on the show. Thanks, y'all.